This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Miguel Turan. In our end-of-year edition for 2021, we're focusing on all things innovative in the world of agriculture with agropreneurs from Australia, Africa and Asia. We'll be talking to the people at Nurture Farm who are helping small-scale farmers access the right information at the right time. We're also going to find out how Eden Green Technology are making a change for communities with just one and a half acres. And we'll not be saying Hello Kitty, we'll be saying Hello Tractor. Find out more in this exciting episode of Farms Food Future. And the fun doesn't end there. I'll be getting the chance to talk with an innovative farming operation in Australia which has developed a fruit salad tree. But before all of that innovation, we're checking in on EFED's Goodwill Ambassadors Idris and Sabrina Elba. They brought home the need to bring food and farmers to the heart of the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. And later in the programme, EFED's Associate Vice President Joe Puri has her take on climate conflicts. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. And you can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform. And please rate us. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Miguel Turan. Throughout 2021, the focus of the great and the good has been firmly aimed at the food system and the challenge of climate change impacts on small-scale farmers in developing countries. IFED's goodwill ambassadors Idris and Sabrina Elba were out in force for small-scale farmers in developing countries. They jointly addressed the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow and talked about how important it is for the world's governments to make sure climate finance filters through to farmers on the ground to help them adapt now. Why, why am I here? Uh, I'm here because agriculture isn't considered sexy, but my wife thinks I am. And This is we, true. <laughs> and we need to bring some awareness where it's really needed. We've heard a lot about climate change um, this week uh, and the state of the world, and let's face it, it isn't looking good, all right? Look, we know it, climate change is real. It's here and it's affecting young people, indigenous people, people of color, but eventually we will all pay the price. And this is why we came to Glasgow, to show solidarity for the, yo- the young people outside marching today and to push world leaders, push them to, to act on their fine words and, and do something with some action. Because we need to shine a light on climate justice and we need to make food and farming sexy. No, that's right. Food and farming, something that is always unfortunately low on the political agenda. Agriculture should be a priority here at COP, but it's been pushed back. It's been deferred. Food and farming hold a key to ending climate crisis. It holds the key to preserving biodiversity and sustaining life on Earth. Consider this. 
Every time we eat, we are making a conscious choice about the world that we want to live in. And not a single person, rich or poor, can survive for long without food. Alongside keeping fossil fuels in the ground, we need to fix our food systems. Because if we don't fix how we grow our food and value the people who put food on our tables, the custodians of this earth, we won't survive. It really is that simple. As we heard a few days ago, the climate emergency comes down to a single number, the concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. What we haven't heard is that more than one-third of all greenhouse gases are due to food production, and that food production uses about 70% of the world's fresh water. It is driving biodiversity loss. Farms have lost 75% of their plant genetic diversity in the past 100 years. One million species are threatened with extinction. Without bees, butterflies, and other pollinators, the human species and most of life on Earth cannot survive. So that's where smallholder farmers come in, because not all agriculture is equal. Small, small farms are not a major source of the greenhouse gas emissions. They do not depend heavily on fresh water for crops. They preserve biodiversity instead of depleting it. They are home to a wide range of plants, insects, pollinators. This keeps carbon in the atmosphere and helps regulate the climate. 80% of the world's biodiversity is on indigenous territories. And small, whole, small family farms grow one-third of our food and only one-tenth of the world's farmland. On only one-tenth of the world's farmland. For perspective, think about what it's like to be a farmer working from dusk till dawn and then watching your entire year's harvest wiped out because of essentially climate change. Droughts, floods, heat waves, locusts, storms. These are the conditions that farmers in Africa and around the world have to contend with. We first saw this, we saw this firsthand in Sierra Leone, where my parents are from. And it is deeply unfair that the people who contribute so little towards climate change are the ones that bear the brunt of it. And as I said before, farmers around the world are struggling from India to right here in the UK and the United States. Climate change is already starting to affect global food supplies, and this is going to be an, an issue for all of us. So we are here to call on the world to invest more in these issues and to listen to the voices of the people who we know are most impacted. They should be front and center of the climate discussions, and yet too many activists like Vanessa Nakate, who are raising inequity issues to climate change, are being ignored, literally cropped out of the picture. We need to revolutionize how people look at food, how it's produced, who produces it, and who consumes it. I want people to understand the true cost of food, environmental, social, and financial, and how we can all help. Small farmers earn only six cents for every dollar of food they produce. Farmers who grow one-third of the world's food should not be stuck in poverty and hunger themselves. 
We are so grateful to the smart experts and, and the leaders in this room who have been working on agricultural policies to make life better for these farmers, so thank you. The solutions are out there. Take this to hell. In the 1980s, EFAD started working with farmers to restore barren land. They helped farmers revive and improve traditional techniques to capture and store rainwater, traditional. Thousands of hectares were restored. Today, the plateaus are covered in trees. Even through drought, there's water in the wells. Villagers produce enough vegetable and to feed themselves, and they can also sell the surplus. All of this is thanks to simple and inexpensive techniques that villagers can do themselves. This is just one example. Thanks to the support of EFAD and also organizations like Conservation International, who we proudly sit on the board of, and many of you in this audience, millions of farmers are feeding their families, sending their kids to school, they're supplying local markets, despite COVID, despite climate change. But we need to do much, much more. There are 500 million small farms, and investments are only reaching a small portion of them. For every $18 spent on climate change mitigation, only $1 is spent on adaptation. Only 1.7% of climate funding reaches these communities. That's terrifying. The funding is out there. It just needs to be pointed in the right direction. We, we, we are a young species compared to how long we've been here on this earth. And yet, we, in, in a relatively short space of time, we have managed to destroy parts of our planet beyond repair. We have wiped out whole species and vegetation forever. Worse still, we're in danger of wiping ourselves out. Not, not from just the adverse effects of climate change, but the fact that we might not be able to grow the food that we need to eat. Our appetite for innovation is incredible, but we can't eat innovation, and we certainly can't eat each other. Let's shift our thinking and action in and put this food and agriculture and nature-based solutions at the heart of these discussions. It's time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for having us. That was EFIT's Goodwill Ambassadors Idris and Sabrina Elba addressing the UNF C COP26 Climate Summit. Coming up, we find out all about nurture farms. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. Farmers confront uncertainty and risk every single day. With a race to accelerate sustainable farming practices, to mechanise, automate and digitise, the small farmers can be left behind. With fewer resources, they lack the resilience to keep up. This is where Nurture Farm comes in. It's an online platform breaking the accessibility barrier for small growers, giving them the tools, biological solutions, credit, market access and training that's needed to farm more sustainably and profitably with less environmental impact. I spoke to Nurture's Chief Operating Officer, Dhruv Sawney, and asked him what makes their platform stand out from the rest. Nurture is an independent, open digital platform, right? And it was born out of a desire to reduce the risks a farmer undertakes and increase certainty and uh, resilience. 
and make, uh, you know, provide for sustainable outcomes uh, for all farmers, right? So to that end, we built an ecosystem in which we connect farmers uh, with retailers uh, and other ecosystem partners uh, through various technologies to provide the right solutions that a farmer needs to to deliver uh, the right outcomes for them, right? So in a nutshell, if we think about uh, each transaction that the farmer undertakes, which is through one crop cycle, uh, typically we've seen multiple uh, companies in ag tech undertake different parts of that life cycle and, and try and get really good at that. What we've tried to do is we've tried to mirror what a farmer does through one crop cycle and try and achieve the same outcome that the farmer desires, thereby uh, being an assist assistant in terms of providing multiple technologies in a seamless way throughout that crop cycle. Uh, and, and in doing so, we try to do that with a very strong focus and lens on sustainable ag and practices. So what would you say makes this platform more accessible to smallholder farmers in developing countries? Yeah, so one of the challenges that uh, smallholder farmers face uh, in the developing economies is essentially that there isn't a shared economy model available when it comes to agriculture. Uh, the cost of buying expensive mechanization is just you know, uh, uh, not uh, worth their money, their investment. And so they struggle with expensive labor. They struggle with finding labor at the right time. And this often results in subpar yields and performances. Uh, also, when you're undertaking manual effort in the field, you're not going to get the desired result because uh, the skills are often not there and and uh, the mechanization is not available to them as a service. So one of the big differentiation that we're trying to bring in here is, is provide farm mechanization as a service uh, fully digitized to the farmers, right? And so just like a lot of us can book uh, cabs through an Uber app uh, on our phones, now, farmers in developing economies like India can book a spraying service through a shared economy model uh, on their phones through an app. And this is transformational. <clears throat> and to achieve this, we're having to uh, obviously bring in a lot of data uh, connectivity, digital literacy, and general literacy as well. Uh, the good news is that there's a lot of smartphones and data uh, that has already taken penetration in, in the developing economies. So... Uh, the time is ripe for that pivot to happen, and we are helping make that transition through multiple solutions that we are bringing. And, and where there is challenges in terms of adoption, we are also providing, uh, you know, uh, solutions through voice-based interfaces, hybrid interfaces, WhatsApp-based solutions uh, through our contact centers. So no, no farmer should be left out of this opportunity in terms of being able to you know, take part into the shared economy model. Dhruv, um, tell me about the the your experience in India and in particular the problem of stubble burning and Nurture Farm's efforts to eliminate this practice. Yeah, one of our key focus areas has been, you know, in tackling this perennial issue of stubble burning. Um, it's a hazardous practice prevalent in the north and west of India. Uh, about 5.7 million acres of paddy is, you know, burned by farmers every year. Uh, and this this happens because, you know, of a combination of things, policy, timing and everything. And 
essentially farmers are left with a very small window within which they have to transition from one crop to the other. And so they end up burning the stubble as opposed to letting it you know, decompose naturally. Uh, the downsides of this are, are quite abundant. Uh, there's massive air pollution that happens that impacts public health uh, to the tune of uh, about $20 billion uh, annually. Uh, there's massive amount of uh, greenhouse gas emission. Uh, the soil nutrients uh, are, are degraded uh, considerably and there's loss of uh, flora and fauna as well. Uh, at Nurture, we recognize this is a massive issue uh, for, for people and for the farmers. They're just left with no alternative. So we are focusing on encouraging a transition to regenerative practices, and we've launched a crop residue management program to eliminate uh, you know, this hazardous practice. Um, so we've enrolled uh, over half a million acres of paddy crop in the program which is roughly about 8 to 10% of the crop fields burned. Uh, and our program will offer a biological solution in the form of a spray that facilitates timely decomposition of the stubble. Uh, and this directly eliminates the need to burn the crop. Uh, it you know, drastically reduces uh, pollution. And uh, also the nutrients are maintained. In fact, we probably add uh, more organic matter back into the soil. That was Nurture Farms' Dhruv Sawney, and you can find more about them at www.nurture.farm. Please tune in to any of our 27 podcasts and nearly 250 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 24, we talked about biodiversity advantage for small-scale farmers. In episode 25, we found out just how crops will be affected by climate change. And in episode 26, we did a deep dive into the blue economy in East and Southern Africa. Next month, in episode 28, we'll be finding out just what's in store for 2022. Coming up, we're heading across to Eden Green Technology. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. Eddie Badrina is the CEO of Eden Green Technology a vertical farming technology that helps people around the world sustainably grow large amounts of food using less land, water and energy. Eddie is incredibly passionate about food security and was keen to tell me how one and a half acres or 0.6 hectares can change a community. I asked how Eden Green's version of vertical farming is different from the rest, particularly in relation to energy efficiency. Sure. So eating green uh, is is the combination of what we're seeing in the marketplace of, I'll call it two binary uh, decisions. You either go greenhouse or you go vertical farming. And so the pros of greenhouses are that uh, you've got the energy efficiency of the sun uh, and the pros of the vertical is that you've got density. And so when you can combine that density with the energy efficiency uh, of sunlight and using complementary grow lights, then uh, that's how we are different from the rest. And that's how we're more energy efficient. Uh, most vertical farms, as you know, uh, just take up a ton of electric light costs, uh, just just sheer due sheerly to the fact that it's all indoors and there's just racks and racks of, uh, of greens with racks and racks of lights on top of them. Uh, and then even with a greenhouse, you still have to cover one, one acre of acre and a half of our greenhouse, which is about 0.6 hectares, 
uh, is equivalent to about 10 acres of, uh, of, a, of a greenhouse, uh, a normal, normal hydroponic uh, flat tray greenhouse. So uh, we don't have to cover 10 acres with lights. We only have to cover an acre and a half. So how can those one and a half acres um, change an entire community? So one and a half acres uh, can produce roughly uh, 550 tons of leafy greens a year. So uh, that is that is life-changing when it comes to how many people it can feed. You're looking at anywhere from two to three million servings of food uh, out, out of an acre and a half of greenhouse of 0.6 hectares. So when you talk about changing a community and changing the way that the community is uh, having access to affordable greens uh, year round, season agnostic, and it's totally safe and it's local, uh, you're, you're not just changing uh, you know, the community on a, on a broad level, you're changing the way families and individuals eat because now they have access to nutritious greens where they didn't have it before. So how would you say this could be applicable to, to rural communities in developing countries? So uh, because it's relatively cost effective, I think rural community communities can really benefit two ways. One, they can use a portion of the greens uh, and of the produce to feed themselves in their community, and then they can sell the rest. So think of a back going back to the co-op uh, here in the US, the co-op model, where you had a community that uh, grew uh, all together, they sold it in a co-op manner, uh, they fed themselves and they sold the rest. I think that can really uh, be applicable to developing countries in rural communities there where uh, they can stand up their own greenhouse, they can feed their own small communities and the surrounding communities, and then they can sell the rest on the open market. And do you, do you have any examples of where you put your system into practice and the type of returns that are available? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got uh, our R&D facility here in uh, Texas, and it's 44,000 square feet, so just about an acre, uh, so 0.4 hectares, roughly. And uh, and we've had so much demand for our greens, we actually had to turn it into a full-on production facility recently. Uh, and we're building, uh, because of that demand, we're building another greenhouse right next to it, a commercial facility. It's about 72,000 square feet, uh, which is an acre and a half. And uh, in those type of returns, I mean, you're going to see anywhere from a 45% gross margin. And depending on how you run uh, the greenhouse, you're probably looking at a, at a 20%, 20, 20 to 25% EBITDA. It's pretty it's way different uh, financials than you'll see in almost any other vertical farming uh, setup were actually profitable. So each one of our greenhouse units is profitable and uh, in their economic units unto themselves. And I would say that is the biggest differentiator with us and anyone else. That was Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green Technology. And you can find out more about them at edengreen.com. Coming up, have you ever wanted to get a mix of fruit from the same tree? We'll have more on that. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Miguel Terran. A fruit salad tree sounds fantastical, but is in fact very real. It's a tree that can grow up to six different types of fruits all at the same time on the same tree. This is possible thanks to the ancient technique of tree grafting, 
that consists of adding one plant's tissue to another one that is later attached to an established root. I had the opportunity to talk with Kerry West, CEO of Fruit Salad Trees, and she explained that to grow one of these trees, you can only put the same family of fruit together in one tree. In her farm in Australia, they produce three varieties, stone fruit, citrus fruit, and multi-apple fruit salad trees. I asked Kerry what made her and her family get started in the tree grafting industry. Well, we were on a farm out of Sydney. We moved to a farm, my husband and I, and he'd had a bit of a background in farming and we wanted to get out of the city. And really it was a question of poverty. Um, necessity was the mother of invention here and we couldn't afford to buy our own fruit trees. And my husband always learnt things out of a book. So a book was given to him about grafting and he experimented on a tree in the farm that we just purchased and um, it was a plum tree and he grafted 30 different kinds of stone fruit and out of the 30 he grafted 29 was successful and so that became our fruit salad tree the the name fruit salad tree just plopped into our head that's what it was and um, so we decided wow and friends thought wow and and we thought well why don't we try and make these trees so that's what we started to a bit over 30 years ago now could you tell us about the type of customers you have are they individuals small-scale farmers or larger landowners well they vary um sometimes it's mostly the um, person that hasn't got a lot of space for fruit trees some farmers <clears throat> scale down and then they want to go onto a smaller property and um, they're used to having single fruit trees and they'll buy our trees with two or three fruits on them so we're, we're supplying trees to people that there's just two in the household so they might decide to have a tree with five different fruits on it or four different fruits because they don't want a big quantity of any of the one kind of fruit and they want it to pick it over a period of time. They can grow them in pots too and keep them smaller in courtyards. But commercial orchardists, we don't suit their production because all the fruits can't be harvested at the same time. Usually they send their tractors down the rows of their trees and they pick that particular orange because it's ready now and there's rows and rows of it. So they pick it all at the same time, whereas our tree, just one side of it might be ready now and the other side might be ready in two months' time. So it's not practical for commercial use in those terms. How hardy are these trees in the face of changing climates? A changing climates, well, we look at that because we ship the trees around Australia and some destinations overseas, and we're looking to expand in, in that area. But the different climates, we choose, uh, for example, the rootstock tree of the citrus tree. Um, it's a little bit dwarfing, um, and we choose that one because it can withstand very cold temperatures, and uh, it's adaptable to a lot of different soil conditions. The stone fruit ones that we do have the varieties on them that suit warmer, uh, even tropical areas, as well as the cold areas, so that we're trying to establish fruits uh, that can produce in both climates. With the apple tree, then we've got two different kinds of apples. We've got all climate because it can fruit in the warmer and the colder climates. And then we also have what's called a cold climate apple, and they're 
varieties that must stay in a cold climate. You can't put the cold climate varieties into a warm climate. Um, lastly, would fruit cellar trees have any application for small scale farmers in developing countries? Yes, in developing countries, yeah, grafting is a fantastic technique and it can be adapted to lots of um, plant life. Um, so it, it, all countries can use it. And um, we've developed a technique over the years that streamlines it for us. Um, there's a special care point that I'd like to mention. You've got to keep making sure that as the tree's young and developing and growing up, that it's not not got too much fruit on it take some of them off so the branch work grows rather than the fruit keep that balancing going until the tree reaches its maximum height so keep that balance happening so that one doesn't dominate because otherwise the if one's allowed to dominate then it'll start taking energy away from the other two keep that balance happening and uh, look at it regularly and then treat it like any other fruit tree sun food fertilising, um, good drainage, all that applies to any fruit tree. It's, it's uh, just like looking after one tree, but you've got multiple fruits growing on one tree. If you want to learn more about this technique, you can visit the webpage www.fruitsaladtrees.com where you will find many tips, guides and reminders of what to do with your own fruit salad tree. Up next, we're going to be saying, hello tractor. This is Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. They've been talked about as the Uber of agriculture. Hello Tractor is a technology company that through its platforms allow tractor owners to link with farmers who need their services. Basically, it helps small farmers take the toil out of the daily grind. It offers farmers the chance to pay for what they need in terms of tractor use at a fraction of the cost of manual labour. It also allows farmers to schedule their tractor service in advance, letting them plant on time and fully cultivate their land with a professional contractor and maximise profits. Started back in 2015 in Nigeria, Hello Tractor is now in 13 countries in Africa, three in Asia and also Guatemala and Jamaica. Folu Okunade is Chief Operating Officer at Hello Tractor he told me how their platform differs from the Uber model. One is we also provide uh, fleet management services for our tractor owners. And so they can uh, monitor their operators, um, uh, the, 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 their fuel efficiency. Um, they can see how much work the, the, the operators are doing on a daily basis. Um, so that's one, one difference. Another key difference, which I think is probably the, the biggest difference, is... Um, one of the things agriculture relies on around the world, but especially in Africa, is relationships. Um, you know, and so you can't really get away with just providing technology without also um, uh, 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 solving for relationships. Um, and so the way we do that is we have uh, an army of um, community-based booking agents. Um, these are, you know, young entrepreneurial. Um, you know, well-respected people in their community that um, are serving as kind of hello tractor agents on the ground and they're working on behalf of the tractor owner and the farmer. Um, so they're kind of a go-between uh, between the two to help farmers that might not be, um, you know, used to using a smartphone or, or, or maybe um, having problems with the hello tractor app. They help them to book their services 
Um, and then their job on behalf of the tractor owner is really to help aggregate the demand, right? Because our model also works on aggregated demand, not just a single farmer. Um, you know, so when a, when a booking agent can book 20 to 30 um, hectares um, for a tractor owner, um, that becomes a, a, a lot more economically viable for that tractor owner to service than to service one hectare um, dispersed across um, across the, the counties and, and, and the countries. Taking this from the perspective of, of, of the farmer, from the client, how would they see, how would they use Hello Tractor? And, and, and more importantly, how does this fight poverty and scarcity for small-scale farmers? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the things that, um, you know, we did a study last year and then about 86% of our customers, um, you know, live below the poverty line. Um, and, and, and even more uh, uh, special for us, about 55% of those farmers were accessing um, tractors for the first time or any mechanization for the first time. Um, so what, what that really spoke to us was um, that we were expanding um, the use of mechanized equipment tractors um, to people that were not, um, you know, didn't think that they had access before. They didn't know how to get access to um, to tractors before. That's something that we're really proud of. Um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, we believe that, uh, you know, mechanization has been known to um, increase productivity, increase yield, you know, 50, up to 50% of the yield gap um, is as directly as, as a result of, of mechanization. Um, mechanization as, as compared to, to manual labor, um, you know, you can do your work up to 40, 40 times as, as, as fast um, and, a, and a third of the costs that it would take you for, for manual labor. Um, so we're definitely addressing uh, uh, key needs in, in, in the population that desperately needs mechanization, um, but also um, from the farmer perspective, but also from the tractor owner perspective, we're increasing the productivity of your, of your asset uh, and, and ultimately increasing your, your income then increasing the liquidity of the market to be able to finance additional tractors um, to service additional farmers. Um, one of the, the big issues facing um, the sector is retaining young people within it. And so how do you make farming, how does Hello Tractor make farming more attractive to young people in Africa? Yeah, I mean, that's the key... Um, yeah, that's a really good question. It's a key question um, because, as we see, um, uh, farming and agriculture still plays a large role um, in, in food security in the economies that we're in. Um, we see the average age of, of farmers um, the, and people just in, in the farming sector continue to increase year over year. We see rapid um, ur ur urbanization, which means you know folks are are leaving the, the rural areas um, you know, uh, uh, way too quickly, right? So it's a challenge that that um, is is uh, front and center for us as well. Um, you know, the way that we're addressing it is creating opportunities for for young folks, um, you know, to really see agriculture not just as as a um, you know backbreaking exercise that you know you've got to uh, grab your hoe and 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 do do some some manual labor for for hours in the day, um, but creating opportunities where folks can be uh, like booking agents that I spoke about earlier, right? So you can um, uh, you know be for, for for young folks that are already in their communities and, and well versed with technology, the use of of mobile applications. 
um, they can serve as booking agents and, and help other farmers in their community um, to book demand, to get access to, to tractors. Um, we have opportunities as operators where you can actually be trained to be a tractor operator um, and, and, and also utilize technology, um, but um, you know, operate a, a piece of machinery that allows you to do the, the, the work faster and smarter, right? Um, and we have opportunities then to also be a tractor owner and um, you know, not only use uh, uh, one of these machines, but, but own it, um, manage it, um, you know, uh, essentially manage uh, a financial operation. That was Follow Okonade of Hello Tractor. He also told me that they are working on new financing models that allow young tractor entrepreneurs to lease and pay back for their tractors over a period of years. And you can find more about them at hellotractor.com. Up next, we have news from IFAD's Associate Vice President, Joe Puri. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Miguel Terran. Climate change is affecting agriculture and causing new problems to arise, completely changing how farms used to work. As IFAD's Jotna Puri explains in an interview for the podcast Eco Soundbites, new rain patterns and high temperatures can make the ground too dry to cultivate, and farmers have to move from their original land looking for more fertile soil. This change of traditional locations can generate conflicts between farmers fighting for the rights of the ground they work on. Let's listen to what Joe Puri has to say about this. Pressure on essentially means as well that there is a high likelihood of political conflict and um, and um, a lot of forced migration. In a recent group of studies, actually, um, a very nice group of studies, uh, it showed that especially in sub-Saharan Africa, a one standard deviation in uh, change in rainfall or in temperature would lead to an 11% increase in inter-group conflicts. I mean, that's pretty big. right? So that in itself, I think, gives you a little bit of perspective that if we are witnessing this kind of change in temperature and weather patterns, all of which are induced by climate change, then we are essentially beset by a whole range of pressures um, on not just the landscape, but also on humans around there. So it's in this context that the uh, Africa Integrated Climate Risk Management Program was built uh, for seven Sahelian countries, right? Um, it is the first and the largest EFAD GCF regional program. It's grant only and really couldn't have come at a better time. Um, it's also at the same time that there have been increasing challenges raised by the pandemic. And um, at 143 million, of which um, 82.8 million is GCF grants, um, it's, um, it's really bringing in five times more than the resources from IFAD itself. So it's really this context that we are working with and, um, and the key um, key areas that it's working in are really um, something that I alluded to already, preparing for climate risk, reducing climate risk, and transferring climate risk. And I can talk about that as we go. Fantastic. Um, yeah, very compelling background to, to the project. And it's really something that's 
um, very much needed. Joe Puri there, talking to Eco Soundbites podcast. And you can hear more at www.ecoltdgroupasoneword.com. That brings us to the end of podcast 27. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agriculture Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efat.org forward slash podcast. Next month, as we look to the new year, we'll see what will be in store. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of January with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Miguel Turan and the team here at EFAD. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.